When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. And welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Chenko. And I'm Psych88. And today we're making our way through the Marvel Cinematic Universe and landing with a character who we thought we would see more of at the end of the last film. So of course today we're talking about Black Panther. Yeah, and talk about a film that definitely wowed in its and it's just opening sequence and everything. Um, and it, it was very vibrant in its uh, teasers and the trailers. It it presented a diff. It was trying to present a different kind of superhero movie, which I think really played to its played to its advantage. Most definitely, this movie had a way different vibe from other films that preceded it and it's stood alone as a series and as a character its characters have have come through in their own ways and i like to see that they're holding on to the vibe that they built here because they did a really cool thing and i'm excited to talk about this one today because i i thought that they did something really special here very so let's uh give a let's have genesis remind everyone that if you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thank you, Jen. So where, of course, do we begin with a Marvel film, but in the past? <laughs> uh, this one's like an inception level of in the past, because it's like a story being passed from father to son... And then, <laughs> but first, let's start with the first one, which is a thousand years ago, or thousands of years ago, my bad, um, you have five African tribes fighting over Vibranium, and then, like, Vibranium did something to a heart-shaped herb, and someone ate it. Why? Why would you do that? I don't know. Uh, because a panther god told you to. <laughs> I mean, when you when you lay it out like that, it doesn't sound very sane. Yeah, but I mean, that one warrior did go on to gain some really crazy superhuman abilities and become the very first Black Panther. And unifies the tribes and sets Wakanda on a course for crazy scientific and technological advances using vibranium to develop advanced technologies. 
And due to the dangers that the desire for vibranium might cause, Wakanda chose to hide themselves in seclusion and pose to the rest of the world as a simple third world country. Which is kind of baffling. You're, you're meaning to tell me that an isolated country, regardless of where really, an isolated country has better tech than, than Stark? I mean, they, the stuff that we're seeing from, that we'll see throughout the movie, outclasses basically anything Stark came up with. His Iron Man suit was considered, like, state of the art, and it's a hundred years, uh, in the past, according to Wakandan tech. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah, we see pretty early on when uh, when we get to see the lab setting where they've already developed the technology to hide the suit within a piece of jewelry. And it took Stark hauling around his suit in a clunky briefcase for a while before he develops nanotech. Yeah. So, like, I understand that within the global context of it all, there had to be a reason why the country of Wakanda just doesn't show up as a global superpower. I, I get that. It just feels very ham-fisted. And this isn't about the movie. This is like, this is regarding the comics as well. This is lifted directly from them. So it's like, you just, you have this hidden country, this hidden jewel of the world that nobody knows about. And no no despot has ever managed to take control of the throne and try to conquer the rest of the world. Ever. Well, no, because then nothing could happen in the film. <laughs> right, of course. Which we should get back to. My apologies. That's okay. But uh, we're still in the past, and it's now 1992. And our king T'Chaka needs to check in on his brother Jobu, who is working undercover. And where is he but beautiful Oakland, California? Seems like a kind of a random location, but uh, I digress. Well, I feel like Oakland, especially in 1992, really highlights the uh, racial divide of the country, especially at that time. Mm -hmm. um, Oakland is, is also notoriously known for several bad riots that comes out of it and you know stuff like that, so... I don't feel like Oakland was chosen at random. No, it's a good, it's a good setting. Uh, just uh, small. I, I don't know. It seems like uh, location-wise, they're taking... T blah, I can't talk tonight. Uh, tending to stick more metropolitan, and then when they're going into these areas, we're not getting named locations. So it's, I guess, their way of rooting it into reality, uh, because we're already dealing with a fictional country and fictional characters, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But evidently, uh, Njobo's been up to some not-so-good stuff, including arms dealing on the black market and selling and stealing vibranium to not-such-a-good-guy Ulysses Claw. And, oh yeah, he's also like fallen in love with an American woman and had a whole child that his country doesn't know about. And... Njobu's partner reveals that he's Ziri, who's an undercover Wakandan, and tells T'Chaka that all of his suspicions are true, and T'Chaka has to make the difficult decision to kill his father, or sorry, kill his brother, leaving behind his child, because that's, you know, responsible. Just you commit a murder and then leave behind an innocent child who had very little clue about most of this until he finds out more. After his father's death. Well, his dad had been telling him about 
Wakanda, and he... That's a big no-no, yeah. Yeah, and he had also given him the war dog tattoo uh, on the inner bottom lip, which I don't know how you do that to a child. Like, again, special vibranium, which apparently the metals, the properties of this metal are godlike, apparently. It's like, just give it to the child, it's fine, you know, and we're not going to tell my country that I had this child over here in the United States, and oh yeah, I also did all this crazy stuff over here, but uh, he ends up dead, good guy T'Chaka leaves behind a child, uh, and then that child, of course, goes down a very dark path because of the unfortunate events that transpired with his father and his uh, subsequent choices thereafter, but... Now to jump forward to where we left T'Challa at the end of his last appearance in Civil War. He's returned to Wakanda and they're dealing with the fallout of the death of his father. And for his coronation, he really wants his ex-girlfriend to be there. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that one was a little, it was a little awkward. Like the the whole point of this extraction mission is... Because it's because you want your girlfriend there and she's on a mission, which apparently what? Okay, fine. Whatever. You're you're the new king. The new king decides what he wants to do. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, never mind that she's been undercover and she's been working on this mission and she's in the middle of getting these women and children out of a terrible situation. But Satala so just decides to do like a Black Panther airdrop and, uh, take over the mission and uh, I guess just uh, hurries the process along a little bit. And then we're in Wakanda. They, we fly into Wakanda. We get to see our first, well, I guess really our second taste of Wakandan technology with the force fields parting and the ships and flying over the city. And we get to see all the amazing technological advances brought to you from vibra- Vibranium. Including some very large panther statues. How much vibranium did they use for those? Well, they have a literal whole mountain, though how you still have a literal whole mountain of it after you've used it for your technological advances for the last thousands of years, I don't know. It seems to be endless, which we can just add on to its list of godlike properties. Yeah, and how did like a whole meter of the stuff make contact with the mountain? And they've had enough to mine it for thousands of years, but it didn't just obliterate all. It it didn't just obliterate all life on the African right? continent, like or the world. Like something that large hits the earth, we're gonna feel goodbye. it. Why? <laughs> yeah. And also, how how did they start mining it? Like one of the properties of vibranium is the reflection of of uh. Of directed force. It's how the shield gets around. And yet, you mean to tell me stone tools started the process? Like, it, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. Don't, I, I don't superhero mean to science. Get into the weeds, but yes, we can all just chalk it up to comic books, superhero science, and move along. Because we have a big ceremony we gotta talk about. Yes, it's T'Challa's coronation ceremony, and in order to rightfully ascend the throne, he has to undergo a tribal rite of passage, and he has to strip away the powers of the Black Panther and face anyone who might challenge him in single combat. Uh, 
we think that Shuri is going to speak up, but really she's just complaining about the dress she's being forced to wear. The only person to raise a hand in challenge is Mbaku, leader of the Jabari tribe. And I'm really happy because I actually have a fight scene that I can break down that isn't all CGI people falling out of the sky. Yeah, go for it. So the fight scene on the waterfall is really, really cool. Um, we get to see the Jabari tribe as well as Zora Milaje, and then a showcase of two very different fighting styles, which I think a lot of films tend not to focus too much on. They'll just give a very arbitrary fighting style, or in a worse way, everyone fights the same. And it doesn't take into consideration the body style or maybe even the tribal differences between the fighters. And and what I loved seeing here in Black Panther was that the Dormelage have their own way of fighting and moving. The Jabari tribe have their own way of fighting and moving. The Valley fighters have their own ways. And of course, the Black Panther is going to have his own fighting style. So M'Baku is uh, very, like, like his whole tribe is very gorilla-themed. Obviously, they've got the big gorilla in their home base and uh, their chant is very like guttural grunting and he shows that with this crazy powerful striking style with a lot of um overhand attacks and and power strikes he's not looking for technique and precision he's just looking to beat down t'challa and t'challa has to fight smart at one point he loses his weapon and he flips over uses his legs to disarm the spear which Maybe not the flipping part. This is a superhero movie, so we have to forgive a certain amount of... Um, Showmanship. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a stylistic thing for the Black Panther as well. It's very much a part of his fighting style. But if I was trying to take something away from a stronger opponent and using my legs was an option, I would definitely go for that. So really, really cool. Uh, I would also compare his fighting style very much to the capoeira style that comes out of Brazil. It's very dance-oriented. And it was developed actually by the slaves because they were not allowed to learn how to fight. So they were calling it dancing and hiding all of their strikes and their movements within dance. So I thought it was a really cool call to that style and a really cool utilization of a fighting style that we don't typically see in film. And from a layman's perspective, it just looked really cool. But uh, of course, uh, every film needs its bad guys. So to pivot over to our bad guys, uh, Eric Stevens is stealing some Wakandan artifacts from a London museum and decides that there's a really cool mask and it belongs to him now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I cannot figure out for the life of me how the British Museum didn't know they like didn't know what they had. You mean to tell me you don't have basic uh, metal testing kits? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't think like, hey, maybe we should carbon date this thing or like anything like that. No, 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 just me. And then they go, ting. Oh, hey, that's not that's not iron. That, yeah, that's it just not, the rust. Just, that's not like, even falls steel. Off. I yeah, mean, come on. Okay, fine. I mean, it's trying. It's painting the British museum not the best light and it's painting uh colonization also not in a very good light which of course it needs to have its uh it needs to be held accountable for its actions 
colonization and all that. But again, I'm off topic. Um, so our wonderful friend Claw, he has vibranium, and well, by God, he's gonna sell it because that's what he does with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So our team, T'Challa, Koye, Nakia, they travel to South Korea where Claw's gonna sell the artifact to an undercover CIA agent played by Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, introduced also in the Civil War movie, uh, Everett Ross uh, is, he's making a return here, which, okay, it took watching this movie the first time for me to realize that he was playing in an American operative. Like, I cannot hear his American accent or whatever he's doing. He just sounds like Freeman. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. He does. Uh, he, he plays himself very, very well. Uh, and um, a firefight ensues. Claw attempts to escape, but is caught by T'Challa, who very nearly kills him in front of everyone with their cell phones out and cameras. And then they decide to just arrest him. And they end up releasing him into Ross's custody because the CIA was trying to undergo their own internal investigation with Claw and... They get Claw into custody, and, and Ross opens the interrogations, which I really, 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 when I first, saw, again, saw this movie, I wanted them to make one, like, uh, Riddle in the Dark reference or something, because here we've got Bilbo Baggins sitting across from, from Gollum. Nothing. Nothing. We didn't get a single thing. It was very frustrating. Very disappointed. The, the fact that we didn't get, like, a no-shit Sherlock joke from oh. him with, when, you know, with Doctor Strange or even yeah. with, with Robert Downey Jr. is also a shame because he was also Watson. <sighs> yep. Yeah. yeah. Marvel, you miss your opportunities to make some funny, uh, funny moments. Some little inside jabs. But uh, regardless, eventually, during an escape... To, or, sorry, Eric attacks during this interrogation and gets Claw out of there. And our guy Ross is injured in the ensuing firefight. And, you know, vibranium has some great qualities, but when they shove that vibranium bead into his bullet hole to, like, I don't know, fit, like, stable, I'm like, you know what? That That's just too much. This is t- it's too much. <laughs> yeah, I... Again, we again godlike property <laughs> metal here. It's just insane the things that they are doing with this metal, and it's just like, why is it? Why is it got to be this? It's basically a MacGuffin. Do, do do we need some sort of supernatural thing to help us get through this next scene? Vibranium, vibranium's well, yeah. the answer. Because we'll it was the answer to everything in the next couple of scenes, because Ross wakes up after being shot, and he thinks that he should be paralyzed, which, yeah, definitely. Not only does he think he should be paralyzed, he thinks time should have significantly passed. Like, he asks, he asks, uh, so what, what month is it? She's like, oh, it's today, you're fine. And it's like, what? No. Wait, what? He's like, no, But before shot. we get there... <laughs> While Shuri's healing Ross, T'Challa confronts Zuri about Eric's father and Jobu, and Zuri says that he had planned to share Wakanda's technology with 
the ancestors around the world in order to help them conquer their oppressors. And of course, this would go vastly against Wakanda's desire to stay under the radar. So he reveals that during the arrest, there was an altercation where T'Chaka was forced to kill him, or was forced to kill Njobu, his own brother. And then pretty much put a gag order on Zuri to never tell what actually happened, just to say that Njobu disappeared, and he left behind the son in order to maintain the lie, because he can't just show up with this kid, you know, with this Wakanda war dog tattoo, and, you know, his brother who's not there, and is also witness to the crime. Yep. A lot of bad decisions were made that night, and... It's not a justification for his radicalization down the line, but it is... It is a reason for its contribution. Mm-hmm. Yes. He grew up to hate the royal family. You know, he, you know, his father was part of that line, and by you know, his ancestral right, he does have a claim to, to that line, but his uncle stepped in, said, I don't agree with your, what you're doing, kills his father, and all he knows is, Wakanda killed my dad. Well, and he also, he also, I you know, idolizes what his father was trying to do, which was, because uh, he, he's, of course, being a an African American man in America in the nineties, yeah, aughts, yeah, he's, he's front row center to the worst a ton of racism. That, yeah, so his father was like, my country has the means to stop all of this and they are choosing actively choosing to not just not do anything but actively ignore the rest of the world and to him that was wrong because mm-hmm. he's one of the war dogs he's one of the war dogs he's out in the world and he knows there are other war dogs out in the world experiencing the same things that he is and he's recognizing that his his country is sitting back and oh is aware of what's going on in the world and is actively choosing to ignore it Everything's fine in Wakanda. Everything's great in Wakanda. It's a golden renaissance that's gone on for thousands of years. And he views that as a travesty to the world. Because it should be a golden renaissance for all people of color, not just Wakandans. It's, uh, it's very easy to make the uh, similar ass- you know, assertion of today in our one percenters of the world. But I'm not on that. Um, Killmonger. The child we're talking about, he takes out Claw because he knows that Ulysses is the number one most wanted man in all of Wakandan history. So he brings his body back as a form of good grace to get him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he shows up at the border with the corpse of Ulysses' claw. They are gonna ask him some questions. So, like, hey, how did you find us here? And why do you have our most wanted man in a body bag? Mm-hmm. And also, who are you? <laughs> and that question <laughs> raises all kinds of hell. Yeah, he's brought before the elders and T'Challa is aware of the situation and, and doesn't want him to speak and tries to send him away until one of the elders speaks up and asks him to identify himself. And Killmonger in perfect Wakandan, announces who he is and who his father is, and then challenges T'Challa to ritual combat. Oh my, this won't be ritual. This will just be straight-up combat. 
Yeah, it's a much more aggressive fight, uh, where you could tell that the fight with Mbaku was very much meant to show that uh, T'Challa could overcome an enemy who is more powerful than he is. It was still done with a, a modicum of respect, and he even spared his opponent's life in the end. In this scenario, regardless of who was going to win or lose, giving that olive branch was not going to be an option. No. Uh, T'Challa has to, again, be stripped of his powers as the Black Panther, and he faces Killmonger in single combat. And we get to see the full extent of all of these scarification marks that he's given himself for kills that he's accomplished. And we get a real view into his plans and his vision for the world and for Wakanda should he take power. And that's what he does. It's not a fight. It's very one-sided. We see T'Challa losing the fight very, very convincingly. Yeah. Uh, and as a black op trained uh, U.S. asset, um, once once Killmonger takes over, he implements what he's been trained to do in these situations during a governmental takeover. First thing you do is you remove the rules of succession you make your new ones and so once he gets the uh heart-shaped herb in the system so that he is the new black panther he destroys the rest of it but luckily nakia manages to get one out though it does raise the question of further succession for any black panther down the line who knows maybe there's a germination factory somewhere we'll find out in the sequel i'm sure I sure hope so, because the whole, like, ritual combat thing is, like, at this point, nobody can challenge him for the throne now because he can't remove the power to take the challenge. Right, yes. Um, so he's effectively set himself up as a dictator, which is exactly what he wanted. Mm -hmm. He had earned some good graces with the Border Patrol, basically, which is headed up by uh, Wakabi, who is the husband to... Okoye, and for a variety of reasons, but the big one is when Claw first got all of his vibranium 30 years ago, he killed uh, Wakabi's uh, family. And so Wakabi's kind of ca carried that uh, uh, desire for vengeance for like ever. And so he's very supportive of Wakanda's new direction of go out and conquer. We're going to we're going to unite the world under Wakandan rule the way it should have been. Which, I mean, again, how had Wakanda not had a despot ever in their Black Panther mm -hmm. is just remarkable, considering we can't even go 250 years without one. Yeah, that it, to keep the peace for thousands of years while also sitting on top of a world-rocking amount of technology seems like a lot of responsibility to put on good faith. Yeah. So, uh, of course, Nakia and Shuri and the Queen flee to the Jabari tribe, and they offer the heart-shaped herb to M'Baku, because he is the only warrior who is willing to face T'Challa in combat, and their real only hope, because they would rather see a Wakandan on the throne, even from a tribe that they are not on great terms with, over this new foreigner who's come in and, and taken over. And that's their justification. But M'Baku has a little surprise on ice. <laughs> yeah, it's just in the free frozen section. It's fine. 
<laughs> we kept him nice and cold for you. We didn't want him to expire. Uh, but they did. They put him on ice to help him stay alive. And the the family is able to give T'Challa the heart-shaped herb and restore his powers as Black Panther. They bury him in the snow to go commune with the ancestors, where he has a major face-off and heart-to-heart with his father, where he tells him that he was wrong and that he needs to go fight his own battle now. Yeah, it's, it's time that it is time and it was time for Wakanda to do something else than ignore the world. But there is always another option other than takeover. Like mm-hmm. Wakanda had basically put themselves into a binary choice. We ignore the world or we take it over. And T'Challa in that in that in those dying moments of seeing his father again, he's like, no. There was a third option, and you missed it. You made a mistake. So he comes back, he gets his suit, and we get to head off to a face-off between uh, the armies of Wakanda. And now, basically, we are in a civil war. Like, this kicks off a civil war. There's no real two ways to divide that. Mm. The border tribe is, of course, siding with our new king, Killmonger, and the Dormelage are... At first, on the side of Killmonger, but then Okoye has a moment where she decides that she's going to protect the true king. Because the whole reason the Dora were following Killmonger was because their duty is to serve the king and to protect the king. But he's not the real king of Wakanda, because he didn't kill T'Challa. He's back, and the challenge is still on. So... They end up fighting all through the plains. They end up in the mines, which the, they had showed the trains that deactivated the vibranium because superhero science. <laughs> yep. And if that didn't set up what was going to happen in this fight, nothing would. We're having our back and forth, and it's very apparent that as Black Panther, they're very evenly matched. And due to T'Challa understanding the technology around him a little bit better than his adversary, while the train was coming by and deactivating the vibranium in their suits, he was able to land a killing blow on Eric Killmonger and take him down. Uh, T'Challa wants to save him. He wants to see this relationship paired. This is his. This is his cousin. This is... A family member, and even though they've had this falling out and these differences, T'Challa doesn't want to start his new beginning with absolute destruction and, and, and death. But Killmonger refuses, and he says that he chooses to die a free man rather than to be incarcerated. And T'Challa shows him the sunset so that he can die peacefully. Yeah, and that was a very touching scene. Mm-hmm. Out of all the villains we had seen up to this point, I think. I think Killmonger makes the most sympathetic villain of the MCU because you don't like seriously you don't have to be a person of color to to know that you know they've been that there's been a significant amount of injustice for hundreds of years okay and so he's coming from a place of there's is now time to make this right mm-hmm And the first thing T'Challa does to make things right is he establishes an outreach center. And the location is the building where N'Jabu was killed. And he's going to let 
his girlfriend, Nakia, run it. And, of course, with Shuri's aid, too. Right. And then there's some kids on the basketball court, and they're asking about this crazy ship that's just appeared out of nowhere, and and they get to explain, this is from Wakanda, and we're gonna teach all of you guys everything about Wakanda. Because in our first mid credit scene, T'Challa appears before the United Nations in order to let the world know about Wakanda. It's not just the simple third world country that they were saying it was. Yeah. Uh, I love the smile on his face when he does it. And this movie really sets up a, a great high point. And it's it's kind of unfortunate that we kind of don't ever get to explore that high mm-hmm. point. Because what this next post credit scene shows is is Shuri helping out Bucky Barnes. And what that scene sets up is the end of phase three. And mm-hmm. we kind of... Marvel deviates from basically all of their post credit scenes for all the movies we're going to see at this point. Um, and that's that's the unfortunate part of this, is all this goodwill is made, and we don't get to really experience it. No, and it's it's a disappointment and a disservice to what they were trying to set up here. Yeah. But that's that's it for that's it for the film. I I really liked this one. Oh yeah. Um the movie is vibrant and it's 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 just it was marketed differently and yeah, sure the CGI isn't as quite as good as it probably should have been in some scenes, especially noticeable in the Korea and the final fight. It did feel a little gumby-ish, but overall it holds up and the parallels to the real world are <laughs> on astounding point <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's all i can say too so let's move into our mid-break then It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to our mid-break. We'd like to thank everyone that has stuck with us and are part of the Patreon. Big shout out to Penguin at our superhero tier. Uh, you too can join on the fun by joining up via the link in the episode description. And if you can't support us financially, you can always drop us a review on Apple or rating on Spotify. Any five-star reviews will get read out on this part of the show. We don't have one this week, guys. Show us some love. Leave us a review. We We'd love to hear from you. And if you just want to chat with us directly, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and the Robots Radio Discord, where we have a channel specifically for the show. Link for the Discord will also be in the show description. Speaking of shows on the Discord, or on the robots, I should say, uh, tell us about the fight space, Shinko. If you're not tired of hearing from me yet, I also host a show called The Fight Space. It's one of the only female-led martial arts shows out there, and I discuss the deep roots of martial arts in modern media, cover historical super fights, break down fight scenes in film, and share news from the fighting community. 
I use my experience training in combat sports to give a unique perspective into the shrouded worlds of martial arts and the people who call this space home. I also recently brought on my friend Ruben Vargas as a co-host, and he's got an incredible wealth of knowledge for combat sports and is a fighter as well, so he's going to bring some really, really unique talking points to the show. Where else can we find you, Psych? You can find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift. It's a tabletop RPG podcast that uses the Fate system. We play Citadel security agents solving crime on the Citadel. I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo. It's a lot of fun. Episodes drop monthly on the first Friday of the month. And um, I just made this announcement at the beginning of the month, but uh, outside of the Robots Network, I've branched out into voice actor work and production. I've joined uh, Scyther Audio to create the Avengers audio drama, which is a spinoff of their X-Men audio drama series. Uh, The premise is that I take the original comics and modernize them into an audio screenplay, which, wow, uh, modernizing them has been quite the challenge. This will be a years-long project as I'm the writer, director, casting director, and audio engineer for this one. Plus, I'll be making my debut as a voice actor playing the Hulk, which I can't even tell you how super stoked I am for that. First episode goes live in September, an exact date to be determined still, uh, and it's to coincide with the 60th anniversary of the first Avengers comic. If you have any more questions, please email AvengerAudioDrama at gmail.com. And that is it for the mid-break. You got you got a few characters to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I do. Oof. I have several characters, and we gotta talk about the Black Panther comics um, and everything going up. So let's let's just get to it. Um, first, we have uh, T'Chaka introduced in Fantastic Four number fifty three in July nineteen sixty six by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, father to T'Challa. Uh, he was the one to give vibranium uh, to Cap for his shield. Uh, he mostly serves uh, the same purpose narratively as um, Uncle Ben and uh, our poor, poor Jensen. Uh, he's the character that has to die for our hero to rise to the occasion and take the mantle uh, to you know find what the character means and, and all of that. So he is pro- he's on the list of characters who doesn't come back except for every reiteration of the Black Panther origin story. It's a shame, but that's unfortunately what he kind of is there for. Uh, Next, we have Nakia. (laughs) Introduced in Black Panther Volume 3, number 1, in November 1998 by Christopher Priest and Mark Mark Tashira. Now, in the comics, (laughs) she is vastly different than her movie counterpart she is a bitter jealous woman who is in love with t'challa and she goes on a couple of rampages when he spurns her like i'm not kidding she gets trained as a dora milaje and then utilizes the falls in love with t'challa but he doesn't have the same feelings for her uh gets mad about it and basically tries to take over at one point uh and always is trying to kill his girlfriends. She is currently deceased in the comics uh, as she gave her life to 
fix a whole murder plot that she set in motion to kill Storm. So yeah, I I really, really do like the movie version better here. Like, <laughs> she's just, as a comic book character, she's a terrible person. <laughs> well, and I also, you know, we've experienced this with other characters in the past where they've had some undesirable kind of based in racist tropes that don't translate well to modern times. And I'm glad that with this movie, they took so many of the not so great things about some of the characters they chose to use and just said, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're just going to throw that one right out the window and, and give them something a little bit better. And we're, we're definitely going to talk about it more about the, the use of hurtful tropes later but there is this like this was 1998 i mean i maybe would have understood the use of her in the 70s or even the 80s but i feel like we should have learned our lesson by the late 90s and we kind of didn't but i'm saving the rest of that for later next up we have okoye introduced in the same uh issue as nakia by the same people uh when she joins the dora milaje with nakia uh, she immediately understands that the wives in training aspect of it is purely ceremonial, ceremonial, and she is very pleased to just be Black Panther's bodyguard. Which again, I cannot state how glad I am the MCU cut out all of that when they brought in the Dora Milaje. Yeah, they just made them really awesome warrior women, not the kind of weird other stuff. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have done. It wouldn't have gone over well. No, no, not at all. After this, we now have Everett Ross, uh, introduced in Kazar Volume 3, Number 17, in September 1998 by Christopher, Pier uh, Christopher Priest and Kenny Martinez. Uh, Priest immediately brought him uh, over to the uh, Black Panther when he started up as well. So, like, yeah, his introduction is, like, only a couple months beforehand in another book, but he's majorly a Black Panther character. His character design was based on Chandler Bing from Friends, which, I mean, he's sarcastic, and I will admit to probably have having interred some of that sarcasm myself, but of your picks, really? You, anyway... You go with Chandler from Friends? Whatever. Uh, he's a lawyer. He was never a pilot. And he's a good, if slightly moronic, ally to T'Challa. And I will have more on Ross when we deal with some of the overarching problems of Black Panther comics in a minute. Alright, finally, someone who's not uh, steeped in some problem stuff is Shuri. Introduced in Black Panther Volume 4, Number 2, in May 2005, by Reginald Hudlin and John Romita Jr. She is the half-sister to T'Challa, and has coveted his role of Black Panther from a very young age. Um, after she killed the Russian radioactive man, because apparently we needed more than one, um, T'Challa promised to train her in hand-to-hand -hand and other things, and she becomes skilled enough to later earn the mantle at a time when T'Challa was in a coma. Uh, currently, she has been brought back from the dead with a whole new power set, because death is nothing but a vacation in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> now some for some uh, for 
here he's a gray area character, but in the comics, he's a villain. We have Umbaku, introduced in The Avengers number 62 in March 1969 by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. Um, currently, he is on the Purple Man's Villains for Hire, which is a villain knockoff of the team Heroes for Hire. I will discuss much more on Umbaku in a, in a bit. And lastly, Eric Killmonger, introduced in Jungle Action Number 6 in September 1973 by John McGregor and Rich Buckler. Though he was never Wakandan royalty, he was Wakandan, and he learned to hate everyone and everything from the Foster family that took him from Wakanda. Uh, a good chunk of his backstory was used for uh, Wakabe's backstory. So, you know, parents died in an attack on Wakanda and all of that stuff. He would be a thorn in T'Challa's side for decades, and much of their narrative for the movie here was lifted from the Wakandan takeover story. Recently, he has been killed and resurrected, and right now doing who knows what. So, we have, well... We got some house cleaning. Yeah. We have some racist tropes in the Black Panther comics, guys. Which is shocking. Um, <laughs> um, especially considering several of them come from a man of color himself. So I'm surprised. So first, we have the Dora Milaje. They are the adored ones. And they are considered wives in training. And I cannot believe that this idea made it past the editors in the very late 90s. Like, at this point, we've had you know, 40, 50 years of uh, Wonder Woman, Amazon comics, right? Why couldn't they just be warrior women? Why Why did we have to layer on this harem idea, basically? I, I do not understand it. Maybe if I... I'll admit I haven't read these comics, but I, I'm still failing to understand it narratively here. And it kind of just comes across as ick. Yeah, it's never been necessary in any other storyline, so why would it be here? Yeah, and I feel like it perpetuates this barbarism idea of of African cultures. Well, yeah, because we never see the harem trope for the good guys. Y you know, at least not in, not in Western media. It's, yeah, it's problematic. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> okay. Um, so, like I said earlier, I was going to talk more on Everett Ross. I quote here from Priest in an interview he had with Zach Smith for GamesRama.com. Uh, comics are traditionally created by white males for white males. I figured, and I believe rightly, that for Black Panther to succeed, it needed a white male at the center, and that white male had to give voice to the audience's misgivings or apprehensions, or assumptions about this character and this book. Ross needed to be un-PC to the point of being borderline racist. He later clarified, I don't think Ross was racist at all. I just think that his stream of consciousness narrative is a window into things I imagine many whites say, or at least think, when no blacks are around. Myths about black culture and behavior. 
I was also introducing a paradigm shift to the way Panther was to be portrayed. Somebody had to give voice to the expectation of a dull and colorless character who always got his butt kicked or who was overshadowed by Thor and Iron Man suddenly knocking out Mephisto with one punch. Look, I think Priest vastly underestimates and us, and at the time underestimated uh, the people of color's uh, comic book audience, which, as a man of color himself, I find it very odd. And also, I'm, it's very interesting because as... Uh, he became the first African-American editor in mainstream comics. He was so interested in comics, he broke broke through the glass ceiling. So why does he... Like, he's not wrong. Comics are traditionally created by white males for white males. That I'm not disagreeing with. But why would the assumption be? Why would the assumption be that there isn't a market for... within the people of color, within the colored communities, because he himself should recognize that he's interested in these things. Why would there not be other people within his community that also enjoy the same things that he does and would love to see themselves represented? Right. And, and we can see that we can see that now with uh, characters like Miles Morales uh, and Kamala Khan and other characters of color uh, becoming prominent uh, members of the superhero community and the and the love and the uh, the like quick acceptance of them and that's always existed. It's just never been so public as it is now because there are no secrets within the world with the way social media and the internet functions. Yes, uh, you know maybe the late nineties they were a different time and they were a different time, but. Uh, for specifically comics beyond being the dark ages. Um, I don't know what was going on that would have allowed things like Ross and the Dora Milaje to enter the comic book zeitgeist zeitgeist. Basically our connection to the, to pop media, basically. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, Mr. Priest, if you're out there and you hear us discussing that, I, I, we would love to have you on to, discuss at you know further length why you felt you needed to do these things because i would really like to know why and maybe maybe i'm making the mistake of looking at it from a 2023 lens um and a a woke lens or whatever just i don't know maybe the fault's on me for not understanding it but i would like to know why now we go back further in time because i'm not done we have one more problematic character we have Umbaku. He is an African man who gets his powers from killing, eating the flesh of, and bathing in the blood of a mystic white gorilla. And then he, like, he attains this white gorilla massive look to himself. Um, I understand that it was the very late 60s, and thus, thus they were allowed to do whatever they want, especially uh, Thomas, who uh, has made controversial decisions as noted here in previous episodes but that how is that just not steeped in uh white power and the animalistic portrayal of africans and african americans i have avoided calling him by the name that he's used in the comics but he is the man ape which is just baffling and redundant yeah i'm glad they called him just by his name 
Right? Yeah, like, again, MCU has done fantastic job of just stripping away all the unnecessary baggage and, and, and showing these characters can exist without all of this all these tropes Mm -hmm. yeah they function just fine without it yeah he's still a powerful leader he's a leader of a tribe he's a warrior he's the person that they turn to in their darkest hour and he's also the person that came in clutch because he he put our boy t'challa on ice in the film no slaying of a mystic white gorilla and bathing in its blood needed right yeah I'm very, very glad the MCU Black Panther exists. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks it, that we, we all wish that um, uh, Chad Bozeman had been able to continue to do this. Because I think we would have, we obviously would have gotten a much different branching of the movies than what we will get later down the line. Maybe this is, again, maybe it's my own privilege of being able to look at the foundation and go, yeah, it's all cracked and... and it's all messed up, and how did you let that happen? And maybe I need to check my own self, but as someone who loves these comics and wants other people to love these comics, it's very problematic. Mm-hmm. I think it is a good thing that we're getting these modernizations and these new takes on old stories because it allows for media and for entertainment to progress forward. Because As we've seen with a lot of these Marvel films, the comics start to emulate what has been portrayed in the films from things as simple as costume designs up to character traits and even making references to things that have happened within the films. So especially for this cast of characters, it's probably a good thing that they got this reception and now as new stories are coming out, hopefully they'll stop relying on the racist tropes of the past to create something better. And, and something that someone can look at and say, these are these are the characters that represent my people, and they can be proud of it instead of saying, oh, that was kind of icky. Yeah, exactly. All right, so, Shenko, I've exhausted myself on what I wanted to say about Black Panther. Where do we go next? We are heading to the web-slinging, wall-crawling action of Spider-Man Homecoming. All right. Check us out next week for our trip back to Queens, New York. And Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Yep. Night, everyone. (laughs) Night, everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credits section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. N7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. 
let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And, to quote Stan the Man, enough said. Hi, welcome to Three Count Thoughts. Let me introduce the crew real quick. Hi. I'm Maverick Stone. I'm Romer. And I'm Jaxus. Join us as we talk all things wrestling. Each week, we'll take a topic from the wrestling world, knock it around a bit, and then go over the week in wrestling from a strictly fan perspective. We can be found on all major podcast catchers. We can also be found at 3 Count Thoughts on both YouTube and Twitter. Or you can send us an email using 3 Thoughts at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready? Ring the bell. <laughs>